Welcome to this edition of Free Thinking with Montan. I am so excited about the guest that I have on today. My guest is Hannah Cox. She is the national manager of conservatives concerned about the death penalty, where she's become one of the loudest and most effective conservative voices fighting for criminal justice reform and against the death penalty. Conservatives concerned about the death penalty regularly weigh in on policy reform and cases of injustice, including Michael Thompson's case in Michigan, which I know a lot of you know that I've been very much involved in. So I can't wait to say it, but thank you so much, Hannah, for joining us today on Free Thinking. Thank you so much for having me. I've been a big fan for years, so I'm excited to be here. Oh, thank you so much. Well, look, you know, before I let you explain to us about, you know, really what the mission is of conservatives concerned about the death penalty, I want to back up a little bit and get a little bit of information about your background. I mean, yeah, and I'm, please, I apologize if it sounds like I'm saying something disparaging, but I'm not, but you look rather young and to have picked a, a, you know, vertical in the law field where, you know, as much work as you've been done and as much success as you had, you could be out there making gazoogles amount of money in the private sector, but you've decided to work for a nonprofit. So I want to know a little bit about you. What drives you to do this? Well, you're very kind. Thank you. And we have had a great deal of success over the past two years with our organization. Um, but I think that there's a real zeitgeist moment right now happening where a lot of people my age who were not brought up in a way where they were exposed to the criminal justice system very often, they weren't exposed to racial bias, at least as prevalently as many people of color are in this country, are recognizing all of the flaws with our system. And the age of information is really allowing us to see the system up close and see behind the curtains, I think, in a way that formerly we didn't have access to. And we're recognizing just how corrupt it actually is. I think for people who were brought up to care about limited government, you know, we were brought up to believe that because we know government is inherently flawed, that it's prone to corruption and error and inefficiency and bias. But for some reason, the Justice Department was really set aside and exempted from some of that for many years. And in reality, it operates in the exact same manner. So for me, as someone who cared very deeply about uh, the principles I believe in, I believe in individual liberty, I believe in equality, I believe in limiting government and letting people live their lives and be free to make the decisions that will best produce the results they want to have in life. Uh, when I recognized what was happening in my country under my name, with my tax dollars, it was simply not something I could be quiet about. It, it wasn't a career path I chose. I was in the music industry. I didn't go to school to do this. I'm often asked, how did you get into this work? Not intentionally. Uh, but when I did begin to encounter it, I was just very burdened and felt like I had to take action. Absolutely. Now, I noticed you... Uh... You must have watched last night's, or you watched probably the Republican convention this week. And what's your takeaways at the end of the day after watching the four days of what I consider a debacle? And let me make sure I do 100% complete disclosure. You know, I spent a career that spanned 22 years in the United States military. And the entire time that I was in the military, I registered as a Republican. I voted in absentee ballots because I was always deployed during elections. And you know, voted as a Republican, but I literally got very, very disenchanted and, and disheartened by the Republican Party, you know, when Ronald Reagan took office and, you know, claimed to be the party of Lincoln, but understood that he was the party of today's racist. And I recognized that. And so I pulled away, but the Democratic Party didn't offer me anything either. And to be absolutely honest with you, I have been registered and tried to continue to register as an independent, though this year I'm going to probably vote the Democratic ticket, because it's just, we've got to get this man out of office, from my perspective. But, you know, it was really tough for me to watch the entire convention this week, especially listening to some of the diatribe and the garbage that were coming out of so many people's mouths, and none of them really addressing the criminal justice system, other than patting themselves on the back and saying, we passed some sort of criminal justice reform, which was really tantamount to nothing, because, you know, we're still dealing with the same issues that we've dealt with since, let's go back since, you know, 1870, um, I think in a lot of ways. So we have a criminal justice system that was really, you know, I think, you know, has, has molded itself into the new hundred year slavery institution, you know, a way to make sure that since you can't put chains on people of color in your backyard, then let's put chains in them and put them away in prisons 
and you know feed an industrial complex. So I just I really just want to know your opinion of what you thought about this week's Republican convention. Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to speak in my private capacity to address this certainly, and not my official please. one. But Absolutely. yeah, as a voter, you know I. I feel a bit conflicted. It's really heartening to see criminal justice reform discussed publicly and at the national level. And it's for the first time in my life we're seeing that happen. We're seeing that it is really popular. It is so popular that Republicans are stumping on it. Um, that says to me that we've done significant work in the culture because we know politics flows downstream from culture. And I think people truly get it on criminal justice reform at this point. They're demanding it. Um, it's, it's, it's something that people have to be leading on. But my big problem, both this week and last week with the DNC, as a voter watching those two events, was that people are stumping on something, but they don't actually mean business on it. And right. that is highly offensive to me. Um, I'm also a Christian. That's something that also informs my work. And to see the stories of redemption trotted out and celebrated and talked about um, as what you know, great opportunity we're providing for second chances and we're rehabilitating people. And knowing what was going on beneath the scenes right there, you know, we were carrying out executions this week. We were continuing to have policing that was over on racial bias. We were continuing to have prisons where people couldn't get the medical needs that they need for COVID right now during a pandemic. And so it, it feels very eerie and creepy to me to see it discussed at that level and to know that with the right hand, they're over here celebrating criminal justice reform and touting it and trying to stump on it. But the left hand, they're really not doing very much to reform the system, certainly not as much as they could be in the positions of power that most of those people hold. Um, so it was it was not pleasant. I'm, I'm like you. I consider myself politically homeless these days. I grew up Republican. I voted Republican in every single election until 2016 when I voted for Gary Johnson. And so I think there's a lot of people in our camp who are principled people. We want to see limited government. We want to see individual liberty and we recognize neither party is offering that. Um, and for those who are less advantaged than myself, this election is even more dire. You know, I don't stand to be purposely harmed or personally harmed by this election or who wins, but I think there are many Americans who are not in a similar position right now. And that's very discouraging to me. Absolutely. And I, I, I got to tell you, it's, um, it throws me when you hear these discussions and people say things like criminal justice reform, yet at the same time, we allow criminal justice, supposed criminal justice to take place with executions in the streets of America and say nothing about it. I mean, uh, it's like the young man uh, who did the shooting um, you know, two nights ago. I, I am just appalled at the fact that the number of people who have come out in his support, this is a 17-year-old who was breaking the law, you know, was not, you know, it's not lawful for him to be carrying a long gun down the street. And for the police to have stopped him and encouraged him before he started shooting, I mean, I think that's got to be something that no one's talking about, you know, and, and though it's been in the bottom of one or two articles, they talk about the fact that the police, you know, pulled up on a parking lot that he was in and actually gave them water and thanked them for their help. Are you kidding me? Is that not almost marshalizing or deputizing a 17-year-old that we would not even allow to carry a weapon in the military? Come on. You know, and then he is allowed to be an executioner in the streets. And now, today, you have so many groups coming out in his support. I, I, what do you think about that? Well, I'm bothered about this for multiple reasons. I agree with everything you said, um, but I want to add to that. You know, I think you and I discussed this briefly around the Michael Thompson case, but I'm a huge supporter of the Second Amendment. I believe that it is a vital right in self-defense. And when we allow, when we allow the disparate treatment of people of color carrying guns versus white boys carrying guns before they're legally able to in the streets, I think that undermines the Second Amendment. I think when you claim self-defense in a situation you inserted yourself into and where I'm not going to weigh in on whether or not he instigated or not, because I don't know yet, I'm waiting for full details to come out there. But when you um, carte blanche apply self-defense in that situation for someone who drove across state lines, inserted themselves in a violent conflict, thought he was a vigilante, um, to me, that undermines a lot of other freedoms as well that are very important. And I think it's an indictment of our policing that you have 17-year-old kids who think they need to be out there protecting our streets because they don't trust the cops to do it. Just this morning when I'm listening to the news and they say they're holding him in a juvenile facility. Stop right there. That, excuse me. We have juveniles now that are being deputized in some way to do something 
I don't, I, I, you know, I heard some of his comments about the fact that he was trying to protect people's property. He was going to protect other people. Stop with the stupid, please. I mean, you know, uh, and if that would have been a African American or Hispanic or a person of color running down the street with a long gun, I would guarantee you that multiple of those police trucks that passed him by and let him continue to run, get in his car, drive home, go back across state lines after murdering three people. I believe there would have been another shootout in the streets uh, without a- any question. So, okay, good. I'm sorry. No, that's spot on. Everything you just said, it's, it's exactly right. Um, one of my first sort of big eye-opening events was when I started carrying in Tennessee. I got my permit and I was carrying, and I'm a terrible driver, I admit it, and I get pulled over all the time. And I got pulled over, and from the time I started carrying my gun, I did everything they would tell you to do. You know, you keep your hands on the wheel, you roll your window down, turn the car off, let them know I have a permit, I'm carrying. Um, I got out of every ticket from that point on. The police would be like, oh, that's great, honey. Where is it at? What kind of gun are you carrying? That's awesome. Okay, here's a little warning. Go about your day. Um, And when I saw the Philando Castile video, the man who was gunned down in his car in front of his child um, for merely doing the exact same thing that I did in all of these different encounters I had with police. Um, You know, he was a gun owner. He was legally a gun owner. He had rolled down his window. He was telling them all of these things and he was shot um, at point blank range. And it was it was so startling to me. It was one of the first kind of aha moments I had of like, okay, this is what we mean when we say systemic racism. This is what we mean. Like people are treated so differently for the very same activities. And I think that's right. If you see the treatment of the man who has started the current um, wave of protest and how he was shot in the back by police um, versus how this kid was treated by police, you do see disparate treatment there. And I think that when our laws are unequal and unequally applied, it undermines the validity of them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm hoping that, you know, we come to some sort of resolution on this quickly because, you know, I just fear that, you know, for whatever reason, with the, with those that are basically dog whistling, trying to get your gun, you know, we may have more turmoil in this country than we think come November 2nd or 3rd, no matter what happens, because if there are protests because they don't agree with one decision, there may be more 17 year olds that show up to take aim at protesters. And if there is another decision, there may be 17 year olds that show up to protest against the decision made. So I'm, I, 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 for the first time in my life, I think, and I'm, you know, I've been around for a while. I'm living in, in a little bit of fear of myself. Uh, you know, not just COVID has me afraid and I don't go outside because of that, but I'm afraid to walk outside of my apartment building because I just don't want somebody taking a long shot at me just because of the color of my skin. And mm-hmm. I think I have to be worried about that. And so do almost, you know, the other 51% of this nation who are of a shade darker than white. You know, um, but we'll get to that. Uh, I hope that we, we find changes. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what conservatives concerned about the death penalty is and, you know, what the, the folks are trying to accomplish. Yeah, so I'll put my official capacity hat back on and talk about the organization. Um, so conservatives concerned about the death penalty is really cool. I, I think that's a funny way to describe talking about the death penalty, but it's just such an innovative type approach to criminal justice issues. And I wish I could take credit for it, but I didn't start it. Um, it was founded in Montana by a group of conservatives who were working around the legislature there. And as you'll often see, uh, the state legislature was considering a piece of legislation that was going to shorten the appellate process for death penalty cases. And this group felt really aghast at that, as I think you and I both know you should, because we have so much innocence in the system. And they started calling themselves this. You know, They thought that the death penalty really was a conservative issue. And it was something that had always been stereotyped as a Democrat bleeding heart sort of argument. But if you look at the foundations of conservatism, limited government, individual liberty, protecting the sanctity of human life, fiscal conservatism, um, the death penalty fails to meet any of those. And so they started calling themselves this. And what they found was there was actually a lot of other conservatives who had been really struggling with this as an issue and were really excited to organize, find other people of like minds and um, start doing something about it. And so we grew rather rapidly. We've been around since about um, 2013 at the national level. We're now in 15 different states. 
And our primary work is to educate conservatives just about the way the system's operating. Um, I used to be very pro-death penalty and had never really been around the system. I didn't know much about how it operated, but I had a lot of false assumptions. I thought if I were a victim's family member, I would want it. I thought it saved money. I thought that it was a deterrent to crime. Um, and none of those things are, are actually accurate for the most part. There are some victim's family members who want it, but a large percentage of them do not want it and actually work very, um, very staunchly against it. So as I was first encountering it, I was doing some work for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. I'm also very passionate about mental health issues. And that was when I first started running up against the death penalty and learning more and more about it. And it was, it was upsetting to me to see what was going on. Um, so I try to provide that for other conservatives who aren't maybe as engaged or aren't in politics full time and just don't have um, access to be as informed about every you know, component of the justice system that they'd like to be. And so uh, I find that we have a lot of success just in telling the basic facts around it. I say that support for the death penalty runs a mile wide and an inch deep because as soon as people start hearing about what's actually going on, they pretty quickly turn against it. Um, and that has led to a great deal of success over the past couple of years. We've repealed the death penalty in a state every year for the past two years. Last year, we had 11 states with Republican-sponsored pieces of legislation to repeal. And I think we're not for COVID, we would have seen similar numbers this year. Um, we see Wyoming and Ohio that are both gearing up for potential repeal campaigns, both Republican-led. And so the, the tide is really turning on this as an issue. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I tell you, one of the things that, that turned my mind, I, I, like you, was a staunch supporter of the death penalty. And, you know, I, though I didn't agree with how it was administered and recognize the fact that looking back over time, you know, it uh, disproportionately was used to take the lives of, of many uh, people of color. And in most, in a lot of those cases, not most, I shouldn't say that, but in a lot of those cases, we later find out that uh, the person who was put to death probably was not the person who committed the crime. Now, I felt that way, but still supported the death penalty, especially for you know, the murder of a police officer or the murder of a child. Or murder, you know, I, I, I have my own views of this. Until I did a play, which was an off-Broadway play that Bob Balaban uh, produced and directed. Uh, I can't remember who the authors were or who the writers of the play was, but it was called The Exonerated. And that play ended up airing on uh, the court, court TV. And it's a, it's a play that uh, just utilized the letters kind of done in the format of the vagina monologues. It was a dramatic reading. And what they did was they literally had letters from uh, seven inmates who had been sitting on death row and all of them were innocent. Every one of them were innocent and ended up, you know, one of them ended up being executed anyway. Um, and the other, well, it was just such a phenomenal play because I remember when we did it, um, every night the exonerees were in the audience and uh, it just so happened that those exonerees were in states that didn't give any remuneration to the exonerees. And so uh, what we did after the play was over and we were playing to full houses all over the country in Texas and Florida, we did it in New York, we did it in San Francisco. And, um, and this is a play just like the Vagina Monologues where there are four regular cast members and then they intermix with five celebrity cast members that change out and would do the readings and the five celebrity cast members would normally play the characters of the exoneree. And I just remember one of the stories in there was uh, 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 Michael Cook, who uh, was a young man who was... Um, on death row, I believe in Florida, and you look at the case very closely. No, I'm sorry, he was on death row in Texas, I think. And you look at his case very quickly or very closely, and there was prosecutorial misconduct to the point that we even believe that the prosecutor may have been the person who actually committed the crime. And this man was abused and on death row for over 17 years and abused in ways that you can't even imagine. Um, but finally the truth came out and he was released from prison. And, you know, I, I'll tell you a very quick anecdotal story. Um, we were performing a play out in the Hamptons and for one reason or another, the actor that was playing his part got in a car accident between New York and the Hamptons and didn't make it. And so they went to, you know, Michael, Michael Cook and asked him, you know, uh, would you consider being yourself tonight? and doing the play. Now he had never done that before. 
but literally, and there's a really powerful scene in there where he talks about, you know, having been raped in prison and raped to the point that uh, they literally carved with a knife words in his rear end that were really just disgusting. And, you know, this is a scene in the, in the play that normally would bring tears to, you know, eh, 20, 30% of the audience. But literally that night, the entire audience was like in tears and they didn't recognize that this gentleman was the real exoneree. And so when the end of the play, when we finished the play, you know, it was my role as the kind of the moderator in the play to, you know, ask for donations from the audience. And I also said, you know, and by the way, what you guys didn't know is that Carrie Max Cook is his name. I'm sorry. Carrie Max Cook was playing himself tonight. And that's the real Carrie Max Cook. We had a 20 minute standing ovation at the end of the play in the Hamptons that people just didn't want to stop applauding because it was just as powerful as it could be. And that's what's really changed my mind about the death penalty. I really recognize that, you know, come on. I mean, the, the, it's, it's ridiculous that we, you know, came so close to putting six more people to death. But, you know, the fact that this is happening, I guess your information has led you to understand that there's been, what, well over 160 people who have been released who should not have been on death row. But how many people do you think were actually put to death since a death penalty was enforced in this country? How many people do you think were innocent and put to death? So the numbers are actually even worse. We know that one person has been fully exonerated for every nine executions. Gotcha. Now, exoneration is a much higher barrier to basically reach a point where you're totally cleared. Um, typically, it's another procedure after a wrongful conviction has been discovered mm -hmm. to be exonerated. Most people don't have the evidence needed to meet that threshold, um, even if they are innocent. So uh, aside from that, we've had hundreds of people who have been released from death row for likely innocence, you know, either the trial was reversed, they took an Alfred plea, um, or there was some other sort of way that the trial worked itself, itself out and they weren't fully exonerated. But one for every nine is a startling statistic in and of itself. Um, given those odds, you know, I don't know if I could say a ballpark number of how many people we've executed innocently, but I do know that since I've been in this job, there has been at least one, usually more, cases of, of executions each year where I have felt almost positive that the person being executed was innocent because there was just overwhelming evidence. There was DNA evidence that wasn't being tested. There was other you know, factors behind the scenes where there was a likely culprit that wasn't that person. People don't recognize how difficult it is for a wrongful conviction to work itself out of the system. You know, I think most people think the appellate process is going through and meticulously checking for issues of innocence. That's not what they're doing. They're just looking to see if procedures were followed typically. Um, if there is new evidence, if there's DNA evidence that needs to be tested, if there's, you know, an informant that recants or et cetera, they have to work very hard to go in and try to get that evidence tested to push for a new hearing. And we have a system that's been streamlined in such a way by politicians in order to speed it up um, that basically if you don't meet certain deadlines, if you don't cross all of your T's and dot your I's, it's almost impossible to meet those barriers. And so unless you have an outside group like the Innocence Project or someone else working pro bono, um, most of these guys are not in that situation. Most of them had public defenders that are overburdened with numbers of cases. And so the likelihood that you'll have an attorney who can give your case the details, uh, attention that it needs is, is pretty low. I just don't get the idea that there are people who would say to a court, you know, yeah, the guy might be innocent, but we don't give a damn. Kill him anyway. I mean, because at the end of the day, that's really the attitude. I mean, if you knew in your heart of hearts that you didn't, the case wasn't presented correctly, there was evidentially, evidentially, you know, misconduct and prosecutorial misconduct, and you know that, but you're willing to say, go ahead and kill him anyway. What does that say about what this system really is? Mm-hmm. I think the system is not structured in a way where people are incentivized to look for truth. They're, look, they're looking for clearance and once they have a case clear and they have that conviction, the system works to uphold itself. I think you've got a lot of people whose interest are in protecting themselves, protecting their records, protecting the buddies they work with. You know, people forget how closely prosecutors and district attorneys and law enforcement and judges, most judges are former prosecutors themselves, um, and the labs even, they all work together so closely. And so you've got a lot of groupthink going on. You've got a lot of people who aren't really looking and examining each other's work very closely. And I think you have a, a system of government that intends to protect itself and its resources. And so once it gets that conviction, it's not really interested in whether or not it was wrong. Often 
if it is wrong, they have to pay out quite a good bit of money. That makes them look bad. They lose money. Um, that proves to the public that they haven't actually been solving the crimes. And, you know, one thing we have to remember is our system is really bad at solving crimes. Even with the amount of wrongful convictions we have, they still only clear about 60% of homicides every year. It's even less than that for other violent crimes like rape. Um, and for property crimes, don't even try. It's like 19%. So, I think when they do have a wrongful conviction come out, it's a reminder to the public who's not usually paying that close of attention to what's going on with cases, with cases being cleared or not, that they don't actually know what they're doing. They're not that competent. Right. And when we talk about we have a law and, a law and order you know, administration or a law and order platform, what does that mean? You know, <laughs> right? I, I, it blows my mind. But let's talk about it and see if we can dispel some of the myths about the death penalty. And, you know, for years and years, it's been considered a deterrent. And you feel pretty strongly about that, that it doesn't help to keep us safe. safe why? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I think it um, it actually makes sense if you know anything about criminality that it's not a deterrent because the number one deterrent to a crime is the assurance that you will be caught. Like I just mentioned, we only solve about 60% of homicides a year. So the likelihood that you're going to get away with murder literally entirely in this country is pretty good. The odds are kind of in your favor in that camp. Um, and so because we devote the amount of money that we do to the death penalty, we, we use about a million dollars in excess per case, that's money we're not spending on more crimes. That's money we're not spending solving more crimes. That's certainly money we're not spending on crime prevention in the first place. And so I would say the death penalty actually is an opportunity cost that makes us less safe. Um, but aside from the kind of common sense way of looking at it, if you look at the data, it shows irrevocably that it is not a deterrent. Um, we see that states and regions of the country that have had the death penalty and have gotten rid of it have never seen a spike in their violent crime rates. If anything, they've remained level or they've even leveled off somewhat. Whereas states that continue to use it the most, which is only about seven or eight states, um, continue to see their violent rates of crime increase. And so if you look across the breadth of data, um, I think I like the national um, study best that kind of looked at all the other studies and, and compiled them and basically said, it's a wash. You know, we can't say it's, um, it's a deterrent. We can't say it's not a deterrent. It's kind of just a wash because the crime stats stay pretty even. Um, certainly not anything where we should be spending the excess millions of dollars that we do per year on it. And there are a lot of things we could be doing to deter violent crime that we see are working, that we see are actually preventing violence in the first place. They're really innovative. They're public-private partnerships in our communities. They're lower cost and they're effective. And that's where we should be putting our resources, but we're not doing that because of the death penalty. Absolutely. Well, look, you know, Hannah, I'm going to take a little break to pay a couple of bills. Let me do that. I'll take a break and we'll come right back. And you've been listening to Free Thinking with Montel Winslow. Our guest today is Hannah Cox. She's the national manager of the conservatives concerned about the death penalty. And we're going to take a little break. We'll be back right after this. You don't want to miss the rest of this conversation. We'll be right back. Well, hey, welcome and thank you so much for tuning in today to Free Thinking with Montel. And our guest today is Miss Hannah Cox, who is the National Manager of Conservatives Concerned About the Death Penalty, where she's become one of the staunchest and loudest and most effective conservative voices uh, fighting for criminal justice reform and against the death penalty in the United States. And I can't say thank you enough, Hannah, for being here and being a part of the show today. Thanks again for having me. For sure. Now, you know, we were just talking before the break, you know, about whether or not the death penalty was really a deterrent. And I like to kind of let's go through some of the things that people like to say, well, the death penalty is at least more cost effective. Come on. I mean, if you put a person away for life, that means they're in jail for 40, 30, 40 years, and it's going to cost more to keep them in prison than it would if you just killed them. What do you say to that? Yeah. So the data actually shows that the death penalty is at least 10 times it's more expensive than a life in prison without parole case, which is shocking to people. It was shocking to me. I think for most people, it seems, you know, if you're ending their life sooner, you're paying for fewer years of them being in prison, it should be cheaper. The problem is that the death penalty's costs are actually incurred mostly at the front end. About 70% of the costs are coming from the trial alone. And that's because a death penalty trial is so much more comprehensive. You have two parts versus is one. You have a longer jury selection process. The state is typically paying more witnesses. Those people get paid to come in and give testimony. They're paying for more lab results and testing. Uh, they are, as a whole, spending more hours by the district attorneys, the law enforcement, the uh, public defenders, the judges, on and on and on and on. So all of it calculates quite quickly. And what it means is that even when a jury says no, which they actually do more times than not, new death sentences have collapsed 60% since 
2000. Um, the taxpayers are still incurring those costs at the front end. And another way to look at it for people that still doesn't really help them wrap their minds around it is that most people who are sentenced to death row still die in prison. Uh, very few people are actually ever executed. And so the majority of those death penalty cases end up serving life in prison without parole anyways. So why is it so much more expensive to have a death row inmate than a life in prison without parole inmate? It goes back to the trial. And I, I would venture to say that it's got to have something to do with the cost imposed by the prison system that is now a more for-profit system than ever before. So, you know, the prisoner or the people who own the prison gets to charge a little bit more for that inmate. Is that not right? We do definitely see that they charge a bit more. Um, not all states have produced that data very readily. It differs state to state. I think in like North Carolina, an, an average inmate maybe costs 30 something thousand dollars a year and a death row inmate is somewhere around 60. In California, I do know that stat because theirs is just so astronomical um, as most things are in California, but I think it's 60,000 a year for um, an inmate typically and uh, $90,000 a year for a death row inmate. So we definitely do see some costs added on there. Wow, that's crazy. Well, now, well, how do we fix this? I mean, you know, we, we have a criminal justice system riddled with systematic inequity, and there's a two-tiered system, you know, for the haves and the have-nots. And this summer, in particular, we've seen fear and anger boil up on the streets of America. What do we do? Well, I think we have to quit pretending we can fix it. It needs to be transformed. And that's been part of the problem, even with people who are sympathetic to criminal justice reform, is there's a lot of people who say, like, let's come in and tweak it. You know, let's let's address the low-hanging fruit. Let's make these um, minor changes. Let's look at reentry. Let's look at workforce development. Those things need to happen, but you're not addressing the root problem at the end of the day. And I think the root problem that we're dealing with is violence. And, and it's something that we're still not talking about in the criminal justice movement. I think it's the reason the death penalty has been a bit taboo, even as criminal justice reform has become more popular, because we aren't shying away from talking about violent crime. But you don't fix mass incarceration. You don't fix systemic racism. You don't fix any of the other problems in our system without addressing violent crime and without addressing people guilty of crime. Because the reality is there's a lot of people in our, in our prison system who aren't innocent and who did commit violent crime. And so what we have to start thinking about as a society is what leads to violence? How do we circumvent it in the first place? Violence is often very cyclical. How do we cut that cycle off in communities? How do we get resources to people that would actually steer them in the right direction before violence occurs? And then when violence does occur, we have to start thinking about what do people need to heal? What kind of pathways forward can we put in place? How do we meet the needs of victims, of their family members, of communities who are harmed by crimes, and of the offender themselves? Because you typically don't see someone become violent overnight. Someone who does commit violent crime is typically first a victim themselves. They're usually, they usually often are victims of uh, family members of victims. They're someone who has been traumatized and been exposed to crime. And it is something that compounds and I think manifests in a very um, sinister way. And so if we could start devoting our resources to those ends, I think we would actually produce safer communities. I think we need to have less people in prison in general. And I think that as a whole, we would all benefit. Um, right now, our system isn't structured to do that. We have a system that's structured merely to be punitive after violence has occurred. And so what we need to start doing is really um, approaching this in a radical mindset of how do we transform our justice system? How do we create something new? How do we remove the need for some of the things that we have now? You know, how can we look to other solutions? Where can we innovate? How can we bring in members of the public and, and private sector? Because oftentimes we do see government have bad incentives. You know, if they're left to themselves, they're going to enrich themselves. They are going to protect their interests and they're not very good at combing back through the records or holding themselves accountable. And so as much as we can reduce government from the equation, I think the better. I, I don't understand why we don't look to other countries in the world for examples of how they handle issues like violent crime. I mean, you know, I think one of the things is that you know, I used to spend a lot of time going in and out and visiting a hospital in Stockholm, Sweden, and recognize that, you know, their justice system is a little bit is entirely different than ours. I mean, you know, if a person commits murder over there, you know, the longest sentence you're going to get is 10 years, but they put your butt in prison. They don't put your butt in a, you know, a, a daycare center. They put your butt in prison. I mean, I often say that I used to say this all the time is that why don't we build prisons in northern Alaska in the tundra? You know what I mean? And and uh, when you go to prison, you go to prison and then I will give you four or five years or whatever it takes in a institution down here in the lower 40, 49 that will rehabilitate you 
before we allow you back in society? Why don't we spend more effort in rehabilitation than we do in just incarceration? And the incarceration, the way we spend money on that is, you know, building gyms and other things like that. Why don't we even look to and try to see if we can get advice from other countries? I think that's a great point. And we're, we're very much lagging behind the rest of the world in this. You know, we're the only Western country that still has things like the death penalty at all. The rest of the world moved on from this decades ago. Uh, we're continuing to ignore the science on trauma. We're continuing to ignore the mental health factors. We're continuing to ignore the public health factors around addiction and some of the other drivers of criminality. And again, we're certainly not focused on rehabilitation. Um, I think it's really embarrassing. I think this is something that, you know, we sit here and, and, 2020 and say, how did people let this happen? You know, how did they let slavery happen? How did they let the Holocaust happen? I think in a hundred years, people are going to look back and say, how did you guys let this happen? How did you allow jails to look like this, prisons to look like this, for people to be treated this way? The problem um, underlying all of this is that we don't have a society that truly values human life. We have a society that sees human life as disposable. And I think that that is an ethics problem that we have to address in our mentality. I don't think that people lose their humanity, lose um, their, their worth because they've done something wrong. I think that we should find ways to hold them accountable for that wrongdoing and provide pathways for them to make restitution and to build ways that they can try to give back in spite of it and move forward and become productive and whole people again. Um, that's our job as a society, I think, and we're really, really failing in that aspect. Now, you've done some work recently in Ohio where there's a proposal, it seems to defund the death penalty, given the, you know, the current crisis that's going on right now when it comes to COVID. What have you been done, doing in Ohio? Well, Ohio is really a very cool story. Um, to be totally honest, there's about 25 states that still have active death penalty systems. Um, 22 have repealed it legislatively. Three others have moratoriums. So of those 25, about a third of them have not carried out an execution in a decade or more. It's already kind of dying a natural death in those states. But for the other two thirds of those, they've been pretty active in recent decades. They've been carrying out executions. Most of them have larger death rows and Ohio's in that category. So it's one of the few states that's um, continuing to participate at this level. They have the third largest death row in the country. And so to be honest, it really wasn't a state on my radar. We've been working to repeal in states that are moving in the direction of um, repeal at the, at the front end. And so Ohio sort of surprised us, but they've got some really great Republican leadership there that I think are really serious about their uh, vows to uphold the constitution. I think they really mean it when they say they believe in individual liberty and, and they're pro-life people. And so I've really enjoyed going into Ohio over the past year and a half and meeting with their Republican leadership. Um, we have met with uh, just about everybody in office there. We've got tremendous feedback from people. They want to see this go away. We've got a governor who has cleared the execution schedule. He has said, this is not happening under my watch. I don't think it's constitutional as it's being practiced right now. We're not doing this. Um, and I think that that's really interesting because you know, we can sit here and debate the constitutionality of the death penalty all day. I don't typically go into that because it doesn't matter. And how right. it's operating in practice is certainly not constitutional. And that's kind of where he's taken a stand. And so I've appreciated that kind of leadership. And what we see, you know, there's a great Billy Graham quote that says, when the spine, when a straw man takes a stand, the spines of others are stiffened. And so as the governor did that, we saw other Republicans start coming forward um, people in leadership speaking out against this. We now have a coalition of 30 well-known Republican, um, you know, grass top people, former congressmen, former governors, former attorneys generals, even people who carried out executions under their own watch who have come out and said, this is a problem. This system has to go away. So I think we're now looking at an Ohio that could repeal the death penalty in the next year or two, which is just absolutely phenomenal. That's phenomenal. You know, and I think part of the, the mirror hypocrisy effect is what's going on. How can you look in a mirror and say that you're for pro-life and then you're willing to take life? As I, I just don't get that. I don't get that argument at all. But, you know, you've also worked recently in the conservatives concern for the death penalty of expressed concern about Michael Thompson's case, because you work right outside of the death penalty. And Michael Thompson, of course, Michigan's longest serving nonviolent offender, having been sentenced to 60 years in prison for selling three pounds of pot. And I was just in a conversation, you know, uh, the other day with, um, uh, one of my guests on my other podcast was called Let's Be Blunt with Montel because I'm a, I support and have been involved in legislative changes for medicinal marijuana for now almost 20 years since my diagnosis with MS. And, um, you know, one of the people that I was talking to made the comment and I thought it was really just profound. I mean, here's a state, Michigan, that has passed a medical marijuana law. 
So you're allowing people to make money off a product that you lock the guy up. And there are people in Michigan right now driving along the streets with 10 and 20 pounds of marijuana in the trunks of their car and police have to let go. Yet this young man has been sitting in prison now, you know, sentenced to six years. It's been over, what, 22 years, 20 years he's been in prison. And just recently, I guess, you know, was diagnosed with COVID, was moved out of the prison system, put in a prison hospital. Um, and I know that your organization helped us write a letter, helped my organization write a letter to the AG of Michigan, which we got a response to and helped, I think, just bring a little bit more light to the issue. Um, what do you think is going to happen in Michael's case? Well, I'm very hopeful about it, and I appreciate you bringing that case to our attention. It, it's absolutely atrocious what's happening to him, and it's, um, you know, we at Concerns Concerned have become very concerned about another type of death sentence occurring in our in our prisons and jails right now, which is the COVID death sentence. You know, you've got a lot of nonviolent people who stand to die because they are not getting the attention and treatment that they need and who shouldn't be there in the first place, and he certainly falls into that category, and so we were happy to get active on that. Um, and hopefully that was a good nudge. I think having the name conservatives concern about the death penalty can can be eye-catching at the very least for people <laughs> who aren't expecting yes. it. <laughs> um, but I, I'm hopeful he'll be released. And I, I appreciate the work that you guys are doing. I think it's it's really important. And you're you're using your platform in such an important way to to shine light on these things that otherwise would be totally overlooked. So no, thank you. Well, now, how do liberals and conservatives come together to figure out how they can work better? Because it's going to take both sides of this coin to literally crack this nut. I mean, uh, it's not going to be one arm of a nutcracker. It's going to take two of them. You got to push them together at the same time. So how do we get liberals and conservatives to work together? That's exactly right. And you know what? We've had a tremendous amount of success with that. It's been really cool because I think there's so few issues that conservatives and liberals can come together on right now. Criminal justice reform is one of them. This is, again, it's very, very popular. People want to see it. Voters want to see it. Um, we've got coalitions that span both sides of the spectrum. And I know, you know, in our state campaigns that we've run and been a part of, there was no way that we would have ever gotten these bills passed. These are hard bills to pass at times because you just got to get so many people on the same page. And, and we've been able to do that because this is something we can agree upon and we can set aside our differences. You know, I've gotten to work with the ACLU. I've gotten to work mm -hmm. with a lot of different Catholic groups. I've gotten to work with a lot of abolitionist groups in the state, Black Lives Matter groups. I really appreciate being able to set aside differences and come together and say, this is an ethical issue. This is a matter of right and wrong. This is something that we're going to set aside our differences on and come together. And um, so we've, we've really enjoyed being in that sector. And I think that it just takes a little humility, you know, to come in and say, I don't have to win every battle with these people or, you know, be the top dog here. I want to work mm -hmm. and get something done that's bigger than me. And uh, when we do that, you can really affect change quite quickly. I mean, when you, you know, but now I, I sit back right now and think to myself, when you, you have, you know, Breonna Taylor, we have, you know, Ahmaud Arbery, we have George Floyd, we have Jacob Blake, we have all these stories from the last four or five months that I don't know how much more plain you can make them yet we still have people who think that this is okay. How do we change? I mean, and I'm so sorry. It's like, I, I believe that there's, you know, just like it's running right now, about 30% of this country will support no matter what devil does. Um, and I don't, I'm not calling the president devil, but no matter what the devil does, I'm talking about any devil. How do we get at least, and there's a 30% that will go against whatever the devil does. But we also have another 30% that's just sitting with their hands under their butt doing nothing. How do we get that, 30, that other 30% to stop and take notice and say something's got to change in America today? Mm -hmm. Well, it's legwork, you know, it's, and it's not easy, it's not simple, and it's time consuming. And so one thing that the movement needs, and especially, you know, movements that or um, there's a lot of money going into criminal justice reform, but a lot of it's going into reentry and workforce development. It's not going into the tough work of violence and violent crimes and how do we actually look at policing, you know, and we need funding for that. We need people to pay for, you know, more organizations like mine to be out there doing the legwork because what it takes is getting in front of people and having conversations. It takes them meeting exonerees. It takes them meeting murder victims, family members. I see such a difference when we're working around state capitals. I can come in and spit facts and data at people all day long. And some people I can get with that, but there's a lot of people that I can't move until they hear that first person experience. And that's when they really get it. And you can sit in those rooms and watch it happen. Um, and I think that we need to get those kind of speakers, those voices 
on videos, on the internet. We need them out in communities. We need them speaking to different, you know, Republican and Democrat luncheons and organizations. We need them at churches. We need real outreach on the ground. I didn't change my mind on these issues because anybody was protesting. I didn't change my mind on these issues because someone shouted at me or, you know, called me names online. I changed my mind because people took time to meet me where I was and educate me softly. You know, they were, they were kind to me. They didn't put me down for not knowing what I didn't know. And they encouraged me to educate myself further. And they started showing me uh, real examples. Another big thing for me, you know, I, I didn't mention this earlier, but a, a big catalyst for me for beginning to care about criminal justice reform was also when I was working in the music industry. And I was working at an Asheville office where I was a minority. It was a black gospel label. And so I was one of the few white people working there and I had a lot of black colleagues. And for the first time when Trayvon Martin was killed, I was hearing stories about their fears for their sons and the racial profiling that they had endured and, and how this had been going on in their communities for decades and decades and decades. And that was something that really grabbed me because it wasn't impersonal. These were people I knew and that I cared about and it wasn't a statistic and it's, it's something that really grabbed me and made me want to get active. So I think that's what we have to do for people. We have to go and find them. And, um, you know, there's just unfortunately a lot of work to be done. And you, you know, you talk about, uh, you know, the fact that, again, some of the misconceptions about the death penalty or the fact that one of them is the fact that most of the families who are of the victims want to see a person executed. And one of your stories I, I read was really profound about the family where, you know, a father had murdered a mother and left behind two children and, those, and spent 20 years on death row and then was finally executed, correct? And then those and those kids were really fighting to stop the execution of their father because they didn't want to be orphaned. Why don't you talk a little bit about how that impacted you? And maybe you can share some stories like that with our viewers so that they understand, you know, the other side of this going. Yeah, I think that there's this um, perception that victims are in lockstep on this. And I certainly had that. And, and they're not. One thing, and that's a, a good story to bring up because most homicide is by someone people know. Um, you're not very likely to be killed by someone you don't know who isn't in your immediate circle. And so that's a common factor we see. I think when you nail that, I want to make sure I make a little point that, you know, if you listen to even the FBI statistics, I think it's well over 95% of people of, uh, of either race, black or white, are killed by perpetrators of their own race, not by perpetrators of another race, which is something that I find disgusting when we hear so many Republicans stand up there and say that, you know, murder's coming to your neighborhood, or murder's coming to your neighborhood from your living room, not from, you know, or from the bedroom or from your own basement. It's not coming from out of town, but go ahead. I'm That's sorry. Right. Yeah, it's, it's a fear mongering. It's the fear mongering thing that they do and it's quite effective, but it's absolutely erroneous. It's also something they use to try to diminish um, violence against black people by saying, well, there's black on black crime. It's, it's the black people committing the violence against their own people. Well, white, white people are too. That's just, black. that's the nature of violence. Um, so I think that that's something that's important to remember often when you have these death penalty trials, the person, the defendant is related to the victim's family themselves. And so that's a really, really difficult thing to consider. Um, I think at other times you have people who maybe have ethical reasons. They don't believe in the death penalty and have it forced upon them. The prosecutor doesn't listen to their wishes, which can be re-traumatizing in and of itself. Uh, we see many victims, family members are opposed to it because they recognize it contributes to their loved one not getting justice. You know, remember that category of 40% of homicide victims who get no closure, no justice, nothing. And that's an important um, thing to examine. You know, there is racial bias in the system as far as who gets sentenced to death row and who does not. But there's especially racial bias when you look at which victims get the resources and which ones don't. Which victims do we say we're going to make sure we close this case and we're going to spend an excess million dollars to pursue death in this case? It's often for white victims. Um, and so you really see a lot of those people recognize, you know, you're spending all this money on the death penalty, depending on the state, tens to 20s, 30, $40 million a year to have a few cherry pick cases, get the death penalty, and you haven't even bothered to solve my loved ones. Um, murder. And so there's there's all sorts of reasons people are opposed to it. Um, it often can really split families apart when some of them want it, some of them don't. Um, so it's, it's something that is deeply traumatizing to them. And, you know, even in a situation where a family wants it and is in lockstep, they're still drugged through the mud for decades where they're in and out of court. They don't get to in any way 
really begin the process of healing or moving forward with their lives because they keep having to go back to all these court appearances and relive the worst thing that ever happened to them. And so many of them become opposed to it during that process. Others get all the way through an execution and feel lied to. They feel like they were told that there's going to be closure. This is going to make you feel better about the situation than it happens. And they're like, that didn't, that didn't produce that for me at all, actually. You know, they feel like they've been strung along by prosecutors and law enforcement at that end. Yeah, especially, I mean, I think the point that, you know, after 10 or 15 years and they go ahead and execute a guy and the person thinks that they're going to get some solace out of that and all of a sudden the weight's lifted off their shoulders, the weight continues to press on their shoulders because they've been dragged through this process for 15 or 20 years and never had an opportunity to really grieve, never had an opportunity to really try to figure out what the other side of this was going to be for them. So what do you see in the next you know, I know a lot's going to depend on what happens on November 2nd, but what do you see in the death penalty at all nationally, say, over the next five years? Well, I think the Trump administration has been severely out of step with where the, the bulk of the party is on this issue. I don't think that we've seen his um, affinity for the death penalty impact that over the past four years, and I don't think it will moving forward. I think the biggest difference he will make um, is with the resumption of federal executions, which he has been carrying out. He's carried out more executions than any other president in my lifetime in the past month alone. So he is, um, you know, definitely someone who likes to talk criminal justice reform out one side of his mouth and redemption out one side of his mouth, but doesn't genuinely mean it in other areas. Um, so I think that he will continue that practice if he's reelected. Um, but I think regardless of what happens in November, I think you'll continue to see state lawmakers leading on this on the Republican side, um, especially, you know, we had almost 60 lawmakers signed on last year across 11 different states. To sponsor these bills. I think they'll be back. Um, I think they can pass it in Wyoming. They've got over half the legislature signed on as sponsors there. Um, I think they'll pass it in Ohio in the next year or two. And then you've got a couple states waiting in the wings that are maybe not quite ready to move a bill, but they are certainly starting to organize. We're hearing a lot of voices come out against it. You know, places like Kentucky, uh, Pennsylvania, Virginia, Louisiana, Utah. So there's, there's a lot of states that are um, kind of up next that I think you could see movement in over the next four years. Absolutely. Well, and what's next for you, Hannah? I mean, I, do you intend to, to stay in this position or are you going to get into the private sector and uh, work in another way? What's next for Hannah? You know, I hate that job interview question because I could never have said four years ago that I would be here. So I have no idea what's next, but um, I'm loving the work. I really feel that I get to make a meaningful difference. And I am just very grateful that, you know, we've gotten to come in and work on such an important issue and make a difference in people's lives. I think Conservatives Concern has a lot of growth in front of us. Um, I think, you know, we're going to be in reaching out and doing a lot more work on racial justice. I think we've got a lot to say about that. I think that's also a big conservative issue and we need to be leading on that. Um, so I'm excited to, to step into that space and, and see what opportunities open there. We're also very interested in the violence reduction and harm reduction space. You know, I think that's a innovative thing. It's something that appeals to my values of removing government and finding ways to more effectively address issues that uh, are important to society. So I think you could see us in that space more and more, but uh, certainly a lot to come. If people wanted to volunteer or, or you've know, got organizations, you know, like the Innocence Project or Last, you know, uh, Prison Project, if they wanted to volunteer and get more information from you, where do they go? They can go to our website, conservativesconcern.org. We've got all of our states listed there, all of our contact information listed there. So I'd love to plug them in, make sure that they get uh, look, linked up with their local group and find ways that they can lend their voice to the cause. Absolutely. Well, what an incredibly informative conversation. I can't say I, just, I, I can't say enough how much I want to thank you for being a part of the show today for free thinking. And, you know, for all of you out there who have been listening, uh, this has been an incredible interview with Miss Hannah Cox, who is, again, the national manager of the conservatives are concerned about the death penalty. And she gave you information about where you can go to help. If you're concerned, make sure you go up on their website and see what you can do to maybe help. I want to thank you again for being with us today, Hannah, and make sure you tune in to the next Free Thinking with Montel. Thank you.